Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. I'm here in the tap room with our co-host Maria Cabre. What's going on, Maria? Hey, John. Who's our first guest this week? Well, actually, he is our first guest this week and next week because this is a two-part interview. So here we go. Our first guest is the head brewer, co-owner of Seria Brewing Company in Arvada, Colorado. Along with his wife, Jody and their daughter, Catherine, they have built a truly independent family-run brewery, which produces great-tasting non-alcoholic beers. He previously spent nearly 32 years at Coors Brewing Company, receiving a doctorate in science in Brussels and going on to create an iconic beer in the bowels of a major league baseball park. Today, he's on the forefront of brewing with cannabis and has written a book on the topic. Here's part one of our interview. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Keith Villa. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is a uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, we're going to jump right into this. I mean, the story goes that you were a molecular, cellular, and developmental biology student at the University of Colorado, Colorado in Boulder with the intention of going to medical school when you started homebrewing. Like, w- what inspired you to start homebrewing from the jump? Well, the, the main thing that inspired me was uh, I, I did my undergraduate studies up at Boulder, University of Colorado Boulder. Right. And uh, the headquarters for craft brewing was literally down the street. So uh, at the top of the, if you go to Boulder, the city of Boulder, it's a small town. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of hilly. And at the top of one hill is the campus. And if you go down towards the main downtown area of Boulder, you get to this walking mall called the Pearl Street Mall. And it's where a lot of uh, tourists and students go to to just hang out and walk around. And it just so happened that the Brewers Association headquarters was at the end of that mall. And Charlie Charlie Papazian had uh, uh, set it up there back in 1978. And I was a student from 1981 to 1986 and uh, so homebrewing was really really new back then and of course charlie and company were trying to get people to homebrew so they would give out flyers and all of that and so i uh, happened to be on the mall i got a flyer and i didn't realize that people could actually make beer i thought it came from factories <laughs> and all this right and uh so yeah so i, I took it up as a hobby and and uh I went to the local homebrew shop up there and got uh, extract and put it in a pan with water and you know followed the instructions and threw in some yeast and fermented it and uh, obviously you know it turns out as as good as it can I guess but uh, because my undergrad degree was in molecular biology so I learned something about uh, the uh, being clean aseptic and you know so i was able to make a, a decent beer as, as good as it could be but i i kept up the hobby throughout my studies and um uh yeah by the time i graduated i was ready for medical school but at the same time coors was looking for somebody to do uh molecular biology research on their fermenting yeast and to do some brewing research too oh wow and so i thought you know I, i'm gonna try that out for a year and if I don't like it, I'll head to medical school. But uh, 
I loved it. And then after two years, I, I told them I was going to quit and go back to Boulder to get my PhD. And that's when they said, uh, you know, if you, uh, what would you think about going to Belgium to get your PhD in brewing? When did you, uh, when did you start working for Coors? 1986. And it started as their, like, basically molecular biology studies for them? Um, yeah, they, they really wanted to uh, improve their brewing yeast by uh, experimenting to see, you know, if there, were, if there was any um, uh, way we can clone in a gene or, or uh, do classical genetics and just kind of do, do stuff, uh, but just get their, their, brewer, their yeast into a better fermenting shape, better condition. Right. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, so I, I, they hired me. I was the most qualified because I had co-authored a couple of articles as an undergrad. And oh, back wow. in the 80s, uh, it was rare that uh, an undergrad would uh, publish, co-author anything. Uh, but I, I really worked hard in, in a molecular lab to, to, to be on, on the, uh, one of the co-authors on a couple of articles and, I did that in order to get into medical school, but right, right. Coors and Coors was looking for somebody, you know, with, with all those skills and, uh, and I, so I, I fit the bill and, uh, there That's were, amazing. I don't know, maybe 70 or 80 other students that went up there, but, uh, they called me and said, they'd like to have me the day after I graduated. Wow. So after this time span, they, you actually had told them you were going to go back to Colorado at Boulder but instead of going there for your PhD, they offered to send you to the University of Brussels for a doctorate in science with basically a concentration in brewing. Like, mm -hmm. how did that change you overall in the whole brewing scheme and as a brewer going to that University of Brussels? Well, in those days, the here in the States, um, craft brewing really wasn't much of anything. No. Uh, oh. and, uh, whenever people thought of craft brewing, they called they called those micro brews. Right. And, uh, most micro brews, uh, were, were not highly thought of. If people wanted something special, they would get a, uh, an import. Uh, so when there was a, well, typically it would be German or English imports. Belgian imports weren't as famous back then as they are now. Right. So, uh, so, uh, so yeah, people would, uh, get a, uh, an English ESB or or a German Bach or you know something German Pilsner right uh, that's what people thought was unique back then and so I I really didn't have a, a clue that craft brewing would become much of anything and so I went to Belgium and Belgium was not the exploited beer country that it is now right right you've got beer tours left and right when you show up at uh, at the Brussels airport and so uh, it's 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 changed quite a bit, but back then it was it was kind of a hidden jewel that that was really rich with all this beer culture and beer history, and it was really unspoiled when I was there in the uh, 80, 88 through ninety end of ninety one. Wow. So I mean, I'm I'm thinking like obviously for for from what you know, obviously my research and past history on Belgium before it all got kind of exploited towards the end of the nineties into the early two thousands. I mean, you would still have all the Trappist monasteries brewing, like mm -hmm. West Flatron and then Roquefort. And then I'm, I'm, I would assume that Cantillon was, was brewing as well back then. Or were they, I mean, they, they were probably still the, some of those hidden gems that you were probably seeing back then. 
Yeah, Cantillon was, they were operating. They hadn't, at that time, I don't think they had become a museum to the right. extent they are today. And back then it was, uh, oh, the, the father. Uh, the father is Jean. Jean is, is the guy now. I, I don't remember the father. Uh, was it Pierre, his dad? Anyway, it was his dad who was who was the uh, brewer. Right. And then the son took over, I think, in the the early 2000s, maybe. Right. And um, so, yeah, so it, I met the dad and went there on, uh, they called it Open Door Day, which was basically uh, the equivalent of, uh, 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 what is that, a, a pu- open to the public. Oh. And uh, and you, you would go in and uh, I went there and watched him brew and everything. I told him who I was and I went to the, the local uh, university brewing school there. So they knew um, my professor and uh, they let me in and gave me kind of a behind the scenes tour and let me, uh, you know, just hang around while they were brewing. And it was a lot of fun. That's interesting. I mean, coming from a molecular biology background and obviously being recruited by cores for their yeast, you know, propagation and, and bettering their yeast. What was that like walking into a natural spontaneous fermentation brewery that basically allowed the microbes hanging out in the rafters to do all their fermentation. It was a shock because uh, I was used to the big corporate way of brewing where everything was spotless. And Coors was, was I think the, the one of the most spotless breweries around because as you know, back then they didn't, and even now they don't uh, pasteurize their beers. Right. They uh, cold filtered. And because of that, the place had to be spotless because uh, they every now and then they would pick up a, uh, a bacteria or um, usually not wild yeast. Typically, it would be a, a bacterial infection in the, in the beer, and I mean that was it was like uh, all hands on deck, you know, because when that happened, you had to break down things, trace where the infection was coming from, clean it up, get rid of it, test things to get back back in order. Uh, so it was treated as, as a huge. Emerge, all hands on deck emergency. Right. Um, uh, so to go into uh, Cantillon Brewery and see spider webs and bugs yes. and stuff, yes. it was yes. like, what in the world is happening here? <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but as I studied it and traveled to other uh, breweries, for example, Lindemann's, it was also yep. uh, unique and, and fun for me personally because uh, I know Dirk Lindemann's, he and his uh, cousin Gert. Uh, operated. They took over for, from their fathers as co-owners, co-operators uh, in the, uh, they took over, I think, in the uh, late 2000, oh, about 2010, somewhere right. around there. Uh, but uh, I, I used to go to the Lindemann's Brewery and, and have uh, beer out of the big barrels. And, oh, wow. um, and then Dirk even would explain uh, the layout of the brewery and how uh, they tried to upgrade it and um, he said that the new addition didn't work. So he said what they had to do was take boards out of the roof of the old brewery and put them in the new brewery. And once they did that, they got the natural microflora to get back into condition for the beer. And, and it worked, and they were able to flavor match. Because the, the wood actually had been inoculated with all of the microbes, which, you know, it, when you start breaking down science-wise, it, like, it can blow your mind. It's, it's unbelievable. Like all these bugs that just hang out in the wood and in the rafters that actually are the reason why the beer tastes the way it does. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Because you've got uh, not just bacteria there, but the wild yeast, the, yep. the uh, Brutanomyces 
Brusselensis, Britannomyces lambicus, yep. that really is is exists right there around the Seine Valley of Brussels. That's and, amazing. Uh, around yes, it's 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 fascinating just to study that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So you you actually came back stateside, obviously, after your getting your doctorate at the University of Brussels, and what really, I mean, obviously, kind of put your name on the map was in 1995, you created the infamous Blue Moon Belgian White. The beer, I mean, that is most well-known, I mean, I mean, all over. I mean, how did, how did it come about, and what did your bosses task you to do, and what was the process behind creating Blue Moon White? Well, the, the, I guess the, the ask of the, the brewery was to start a microbrewery within Coors. Right. Because in those days, uh, Miller had one, Anheuser-Busch had one. Um, I forget the names of those uh, oh, breweries. Um, I, I know, yeah, I can kind of remember. I think one I think was called Ninth Street Brewing. I mean, but they were, they were uh, kind of, I would say, more marketing made up names. Right. And, um, and so, but what Coors said was, they, they said, well, why don't you, uh, you know, get a team together and put, do this. And, and uh, they also said, said for the, the business marketing side, we're going to pull a guy from the sales area. So they pulled uh, this gentleman from uh, the Midwest. He was a New Yorker named Jim Sabia. And uh, he's, he's currently, he's the, uh, uh, in charge of beer at Constellation. So he, uh, uh, yeah, I got <laughs> he you. left Coors a long time ago. And, uh, but he and I put our minds together to create Blue Moon. So uh, we we figured out what the look and feel of the brand should be. I, I focused on the the, um, the recipes to create the really a, a version of Belgian white that I really enjoyed and had uh, what I call first sip likability. Because in the beer world, as with any consumer product good, you um, you you try to get consumers to. To get your to buy your product, but they they have to like it from the very get go. If they don't, most people will just pass and try something else. So the, I have to refer to that as first sip likability. On the first sip, you have to like it, and if you don't, uh, you know, you're not going to have a lot of success. So right. I designed Blue Moon Belgian White to have first sip likability, so that people, men, women, young, old. You know, you taste it, and it's like, you know what? That's not that's not too bad. That's pretty good. And when it when it was garnished with an orange, it, it really brought out that orange character, which people loved. But uh, they would try other beers, especially back then, IPAs. And I remember a lot of people just did not like IPAs because it was too much of a jump for right. the typical beer drinker. Right, right, exactly. I I got a question that kind of want to lay to rest since I've obviously done some homework on this. Did you brew Blue Moon? I don't know Can you, if you can even talk about this. Is it done with Chico yeast, or did you use a Belgian wit strain? What I'll say is, I will say it was not Chico yeast. Uh, it was a, uh, a yeast I originally... Um, he probably I came s- up with it on his own. Right. <laughs> like- I, yeah, I, I isolated it from a, an English strain... That was uh, really nice and uh, not very flocculent, uh, but very clean fermenting. Right. And we used that for, for the longest time and then eventually switched to a uh, uh, oh, uh, another yeast that was cleaner and 
would not be as cloudy and, and flocculent or non-flocculent right? Uh, because it just made the processing a lot easier. Right, because talking about non-flocculent basically leaves you with that hazy, cloudy appearance in the beer instead of a clear beer that, you know, okay. people always say they drink clear yeah, beer. Yeah, let's whatever, make whatever. sure we, we um, explain yeah. this no, no, to I, our I, listeners right, right, yeah, right, 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 right. right, but like the bigger keynote was you actually developed this great recipe without using a Belgian wit strain. Which is correct. Which is correct. which is which is a a note because the phenols the, and the right right you get the esters phenols, yeah. but it's also the fact that Belgian wit strains are very very finicky and have a very renowned for stalling out. So that you know well, you, you kind of skip all those processes by finding a better yeast to get the job done and still like still get that flavor profile that you're looking for. Right and and. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, yeah, Peter Sel- I knew Peter Sellis, and uh, he didn't have the only white beer in Belgium. There was one in Leuven, too. Right. Uh, I think he, those two were the last surviving ones. And uh, Hugarden, when he recreated it, he did it the best way he thought it, it represented. But he hadn't tried it for a long time. So so I would, I would say that that even his Hugarden may not have been the original flavor profile right. from the old days because the brewers back then were real, each one was really unique. And uh, yep. even today, if you go over there, every brewery is, is so, they're, they're, every brewer, man or woman in Belgium, they, they are, are really proud of what they do and they're very, uh, you know, they'll defend, they'll say, oh, they, they, they've got really traditional ways of doing things and, and they'll defend everything they're doing and say that that's the way it's it's always been done. Right. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So it's it's with his beer, it was good. Uh, but to me, it didn't have first sip like ability. So that's why I created Blue, Blue Moon, Moon to, yeah. to be similar to those. And, and Pierre, he, he knew it wasn't a true Belgian white, but right. he, he liked Blue Moon for what it was. Right. Nice. Very nice. So I know, like, you know, that obviously you created Blue Moon in, in the ballpark where people drink a lot of beer, and it was a slow burn at first, and it, and, it, and it took off after that, and even came with, like, a unique garnish. But can you kind of give us, like, a sense of scale of the project, of how much Blue Moon Belgian White you were brewing when you started, and how much Blue Moon you were brewing when you left Molson Coors? Well, let's start when I left. <laughs> when I left, it was uh, about, uh, and you can look into, into all the sources, about uh, 2 million barrel a year oh brand. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jeez. So it was, it, it's a, it, it was a, a, billion, a billion dollar brand. So wow. not many brewers can say they created a billion dollar no, brand. I, I don't really know anybody. <laughs> 2 million barrels a year. That's uh, of, of, 62 million gallons. That's crazy. That yeah, is it's, amazing. It's a crazy amount, and that's per year. Wow. Which is, uh, uh, so you can imagine the amount of orange peel that we bought, coriander, mm-hmm. uh, wheat, oats. Right. It was uh, Blue Moon. Uh, at its peak, it was it was just a powerhouse because it, it, we were really driving the, the sales of like oranges and uh, <laughs> coriander. Right. Uh, the, I, would, I remember doing some, some beer dinners in Florida, and the Florida Orange Growers Society, they gave me a little thing, uh, a little uh, like a care award. <laughs> yeah. But it was like a little award. But they, they said 
that they were able to track when Blue Moon actually took off in sales because their sales were kind of going like this and not not huge because they, they had reached some some plateauing. But when Blue Moon came on, their sales wow. went off. And and same with California. California oranges also really took off. So so that's that's the end. Now back at the beginning, um it was it really was like you know pushing pushing Blue Moon was like pushing a boulder uphill because nobody very few people supported it. Um right. in the early days people thought, oh this is this is gonna be like Anheuser Bush's and Miller's attempts to get into the microbrewing world, and it's going to fold, fold up, or be uh, folded up, or whatever. And um, but I remember we worked, we Jim and I worked really hard to get Blue Moon off the ground, and then and then me as the brewer, I traveled around doing beer dinners when they weren't very popular because in '95, let's see. Ninety-five, I planned them out, and my first one was in, in January of ninety-six. And back then, I mean, you could even look through American craft brewing history. Uh, people were not doing beer dinners back then, right. and, uh, but I, I have documentation that we were doing them. And we, Blue Moon, was one of the very first because I learned how to do those in Belgium when I lived there. They uh, they would pair food food right. with beer, yep. and so I did it. They weren't very uh, popular at first, but Afterwards, each restaurant I would go to and work with the chef and everything, they would usually stick with at least one recipe item on their menu because they said, wow, this really works. That's awesome. And uh, so, yeah. So, but uh, volume wise, I, I tell you that it was like pushing a boulder uphill because I had to work so hard doing beer dinners and all that because people would try Blue Moon, but they would only do that after sampling. So we right. really had to get out and sample because people would look at it and say, that's cloudy. There's something wrong with it. Right. Because yep. because back then, virtually all beer was clear, uh, clear, very brilliantly clear. Right. And and then if they looked at the the label and saw it was brewed with coriander, orange peel, oats, wheat, right. people would say, "What is that?" <sighs> and and people didn't they virtually never heard of of a Belgian white ale before. Wow. So it was really hard. And even at uh, at Coors, I remember they wouldn't let me brew in Golden. I had to go to uh fx matt brewing company in utica to brew the first few years because uh, they 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 ha actually had capacity and they were willing to to brew my recipes there so nice, uh, nice. so that's where i brewed and uh, that's uh, where it all started but it, huh. yeah but and, and it was it was uh, crazy because it was just a few a few thousand barrels uh to, to fill up the our strategy was to go on the eastern atlantic uh coasts there including right. new york right um and then uh, Denver or Colorado, those were our, our first markets. And then we expanded from east to west. And um, that's crazy. And it was a slow expansion, but uh, volumes really were never uh, very, very much because people would say, well, you know, this is kind of weird. Uh, I don't, you know, distributors would say, I don't think, you know, we'll give this a try. They would order maybe a pallet of product and put it out in different stores. Nobody would buy it, so we get discontinued. And uh, I remember I was under pressure to buy everybody from uh, the Coors family on down to to kill off this or that or even kill off the whole brand uh, because it just uh, was a big thorn in the right. side of, of the brewery. And uh, back then they had a couple specialty beers that they that at the, in those days were much bigger than Blue Moon. Right. They had Killian's Red, oh. and then they had 
Then they had Zima. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. College days putting Jolly and, Ranchers and in Zima. Zima was, was a million dollar, a million barrel brand back then. Wow. So it was this big, huge brand. Blue, Blue Moon was, I remember at the time, Blue Moon would have been roughly 10,000 barrels. Wow. And Zima was a, a, a little over a million. And it's like Zima was, was the, the king, right, uh, and then Killian's also was uh, you know a couple hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, something like that, and they were both growing and profitable, and so it was hard to do anything with those two products around. So that's why people would drink those, but then they'd see this cloudy Belgian style thing, and right. a lot of people said, "I'm not even going to try that." Jeez, so yeah, it was it was hard hard to get that out, but I stuck with it and yep. tried got it to tried what to it create, was. Yeah, six, even six, tried to create some new. I was doing extreme brewing before there was a name for it. So I, I was doing all kinds of experimentation to come up with new products, new beers. Uh, we launched the, the first nationally available pumpkin beer in 1995. Yep, yep. I read that too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Buffalo Bills was the first modern interpretation in Hayward, California. But uh, he was uh, in California and in a couple other states back then. But I tasted it, and I thought, that's what we're going to do. But I want ours to be um, spicy, but not too spicy. Just right. really at, at a point where everybody can enjoy it. And so I designed it to be like that. And But I remember nobody – the first year we launched Pumpkin, uh, we sold about 5,000 barrels, 90, 95. Right. <clears throat> and then it, it went down to like 4,000. And then by 1999 – we had sold all of about 60 barrels. Oh, wow. And that's when Coors, they were on top of me saying, you've got to kill that thing off. It's way too expensive. Right. And I said, well, let, let's give it time. And so the next year, it popped up. It was It's like the market had really changed where people thought, you know, this pumpkin beer is actually okay. And, and so it, it dipped down to about 60 barrels and then turned around and started growing. And... It grew to, to become a huge uh, specialty brand, selling about 45,000 barrels a year. So, I That's mean, 45,000 of pumpkin. It was crazy. So you did the pumpkin beer, which was actually the first commercially available. You had Blue Moon. No, no, no it was the first nationally oh, available. Oh, nationally available. Nationally yeah, available. Yeah. Okay, so the first nationally available. You also had Blue Moon, which obviously everybody knows. But you've also worked on Coors Banquet, right? Yes. Can you tell us about that? Like, what's the story behind that beer? So the story there is that uh, Banquet was, well, let's just call it Coors Beer. Coors Beer was the same beer that had been in existence for many, many years since the start. Right. Uh, it went through little changes here and there, but for the most part, it was it was very consistent. And then in 1978, they launched Coors Light, and then Coors Light started catabolizing the original beer. Right. And so... They tried a bunch of different things to uh, to prop up the sales and get it to grow again. And everything from uh, increasing the alcohol to changing the name. I think it was changed to like Coors, Coors Draft, Coors Original, Original Coors, you know, all kinds of things. And so in 1999, they asked if I could reformulate it and work with marketing to completely relaunch. So I put a team together and we worked closely with marketing did a ton of brewing research because they didn't, what I told them is, is we don't want to revolutionize it. We want to evolution, you know, just go right. through an evolution versus right. revolution because we didn't want to lose 
the customers back then for that drank Coors Banquet, right. Coors. And so, so after all the testing and brewing, um, what we ended up doing was decreasing the bitterness from originally it was somewhere around 18, took it down to about uh, 12, uh, lightened up the body, changed the hopping, changed the brewing schedule, um, changed the, the body to get it a little bit lighter for, for those. I, I'm not sure how many technical brewers you get on your show, but the way you measure body typically in, in mainstream beers is you take the ratio of alcohol to real extract, alcohol to RE ratio. Right. And that ratio is typically going to be um, less than one for uh, full bodied beers. So, you know, uh, heavy beers and the ones that have sweetness to them are going to be less than uh, 0.5. And just typical beer is going to be around one to to 1.1, somewhere in that range. Right. And then light beers are going to be anywhere from about 1.5 on up. And, and, you, map, you can map it out and see how the lightest light beer, at least in those days, was Miller Lite. They were about three. Coors was second lightest at about two. Yeah, about two. And then Bud Light was the heaviest. Uh, they were typically 1.5 huh. alcohol to real extract. Uh, and, and so you see scientifically, they, they, some people say, oh, they taste the same. But when you're a train taster and you look at the data, you can see uh, Body-wise, uh, IBU-wise, there are differences in all these beers. And that's why each one has their customer base because the customers are used to that particular profile, no matter how nuanced it right. is. But anyway, all the changes made it much more drinkable. And then I worked with the, the marketing folks to change the name from original Coors. And we looked at the history and we saw that it used to be called the Banquet Beer. We thought, let's call it the Banquet Beer and bring back those stubby little bottles so we did right. and relaunched it and it went it went from the brand went from oh plus we hired that, that guy with the real deep voice uh, uh, uh sam, 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 sam elliott sam elliott yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. he was yeah. he was the voice the yeah. voice of coors, coors when we Baker. relaunched it yeah. um in nine uh actually it was 2001 i think is yep. when we relaunched and hired him and he had that really nice voice to really, you know, capture it as like a cowboy beer and all that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember those so he, days. I'll That's have awesome. what he's having. He's a badass. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The cowboy's drinking that. I got to yeah. have that beer. That's yeah. Awesome. So uh, it went from uh, about a 17-year decline in sales to all of a sudden picking up and just growing again for years and years. And so, yeah, that was a big success story. That's awesome. Now, when you talk about, obviously, lightening it up, I mean, I guess in terms, uh, I mean, if you have very technical brewers, they'll understand all that. But you're talking, obviously, you you took the alcohol level down by 0.5 to make it more drinkable, so more sessionable. But in effect, were you lightening the body by drying it out and not making, like, uh, not leaving as much residual sugar in the body? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so then you do that by a couple of things, because obviously... Alcohol gives body to beer. A lot of Correct. people don't realize that. Yes. So, I mean, you as a brewer, you do. But right, right. there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, alcohol just gets me buzzed. And it's like, right. well, it, it'll do that. But it also provides um, some mouthfeel to it. It gives right. gives the beer some some heft and some body. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the residual carbohydrates will do that. And so especially uh, uh, dextrins. And so... What you do is you adjust the mashing recipe so that you really cut those down. And if if you can't achieve it through 
regular mashing, then sometimes you have to add enzymes, yep. exogenous enzymes. And so you'll do that. And then you get the body that you want combined with the alcohol you want. And then and then there's some other things too, as a, as a brewer, you, you can do, but those are the main ones. And then you get the body and mouthfeel that feels really good that people can enjoy. And, and so that's what I did. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I would say you had a very illustrious career with Molson Coors and everything that you've created there, I mean, obviously is still with them to this day. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest has won both a Super Bowl and a national championship in college football as a running backs coach. Before he began coaching, he enjoyed an eight-year career as a running back and kickoff returner for the Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Oilers. At the time of his retirement, he was 10th on the Chiefs' all-time receiving list. Over his career, he has coached a Heisman Trophy winner and garnered national recognition as a recruiter. He's here to talk some football and share what he has learned along the way about leadership, perseverance, and what it takes to win it all. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Todd McNair. It is a uh, absolute pleasure to have you on. We're going to kind of jump right into the meat and bones here. So at Temple University, you were an All-American Honorable Mention selection, third in rushing in school history. You were drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in the eighth round of the 1989 NFL Draft. Did you think that you would be drafted sooner than the eighth round? And did that kind of put a chip on your shoulder going into the NFL? Yeah, we are uh, in the early, like in the projections, looking at, uh, you know, how they do the, uh, the mock drafts and, and everything. They had me going like third round to the Giants. <clears throat> and I went to the combine. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling real good. I was kind of, kind of sick when I went to the combine. Didn't do real well. And uh, that kind of pushed me back. So uh, a chip on my shoulder, yeah, but I, you know, I have one always anyway. You know, I, I played, I played and, you know, I got to have a chip on my shoulder in life. But for no, for no, you know, for no reason, like I didn't grow up or I didn't grow up, you know, uh, I just competitively, you know, I just had a, always had a chip on my shoulder. I got you. I got you. So when you started in the NFL, you actually gained some national notoriety as part of the Pence Hawking five mm-hmm. who were the Pentawken five and why were they newsworthy well it was five of us that grew up on the same corner that all made it to the nfl and uh at the time uh john taylor it was it was uh myself it was john taylor and keith taylor and, and billy and david grace who i'm related to now john at the time played for the 49ers he was jerry rice's running mate caught the winning touchdown in the super bowl against oh, cincinnati okay so that kind of, you know, that kind of put us, put us on the map. But, but before that they had, uh, uh, HBO did a special. It was on, uh, the name of it was they grow pros. And they had one, one segment was about the, uh, the Polynesian community, Polynesian guys that were in the, in the NFL that they were Polynesian. Then it was the, uh, it was Christian Okoye who I played with that came from, uh, Nigeria, Ooh. obviously. Nigerian and then it, then it was, us. yeah, Nigerian nightmare. Yep. And then it was us. So, uh, and we were five of us in, at the, in the league at the same time. You know, we just got notoriety for that. That's awesome, man. So you actually played with Christian Okoye, man. I remember, like, growing up watching him. He was – that man was a oh, beast. Oh, yeah. That, that dude was a beast. <laughs> he, he was. He was. He was to all, all of 265 Woo. and cut up. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. So you actually – you've played for and coached for some legendary 
head coaches. Uh, I'm sure they've all had different management styles. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of throw out a few names. Tell us what you recall about how they motivated their players to like succeed. Your first in a, okay. wow, your first NFL coach was Marty Schottenheimer, head coach yes. at Kansas City Chief. How 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 was it being under him, and how did he go about motivating players? Marty Marty was a great motivator. He he, uh, he was all about details. He's all about details, and uh, you know he's about he's about being tough. He's about being physical. He's about doing all the little things right. Um, you know, and he he uh, every everybody was you know he he wasn't a hundred percent popular coach per right. se across the whole board, but you but you had to respect him. You know what I mean? You had to respect him. His his preparation, the thoroughness. You know, if you if you listen to Marty, and this is what I mean by respect, if you listen to him, uh, you'd be successful. You know what I mean? If you went, if you the the principles that he instilled in us, all that I'm talking about now, the preparation. Uh, taking care of the details, taking care of the little things. All the little things matter. If you really listen to them and 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 let that sink in and follow, you know, you you, you were successful. So he he was and he was he was tough. Mark, Marty was tough. Hated the Raiders. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, he did. I, I, that's the first thing up my head. It's, it's Raider week, man. You know, he, he hated the Raiders <laughs> with a passion. He had to think about Al, but uh, oh man, you know, he he was he was. His speeches were good. You know, he'd have you ready to run through a wall, man. That's awesome. That is awesome. And then your first boss as a college coach was Pete Carroll. I mean, head coach of the USC Trojans. I mean, that mm-hmm. guy just seems to have a different energy. What was it like working with him, and like, what was his style? Oh, was, Pete's awesome. It was great work. Great work for Pete. Like you said, he had a lot of a lot of energy, and everything was was positive. He didn't let you coach uh, negative down. You know. Down in the players and, and getting in faces and you know name calling and all that stuff. He didn't, he didn't play that. His was about positive reinforcement. You know what I mean? But uh, you know he uh he had he he got our team ready to play in practice. You know he, right. one of his models practice is everything. <clears throat> and uh, we played at such a, we practiced at such a fever pitch. Like it was like a game time. Like we, we would do one on ones. Like we do twenty four plays of our first defense against our first offense in practice. And uh. So, you know, that that was that was his deal. Competition every day had a theme. It's like uh uh competition Tuesday, uh turn uh, turnover and no turnover Thursday, uh what was uh, what was Wednesday. Uh every day had a had a theme, you know what I mean? And practice was, you know, we just people would come out and watch our practice and be like, Holy crap, that was like you know what I mean, like like watching a game almost. Were you guys full contact most of the time? We weren't taking the running backs to the ground, but we were you know, we were full go. Nice. You know, you couldn't nice. ta- couldn't couldn't tackle nobody. But, right, right. You know, right. in the trenches and whatnot. You know, we're we're getting blocking. You know, we're getting after. Nice, nice. And then one coach, Bruce Arians, was with you. I mean, ba- basically for the whole ride. He was your coach for four years at Temple. Your running mm-hmm. backs coach in Kansas City when you first joined the NFL, and your mm-hmm. boss when you were the running backs coach for the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's right. What was Bruce's style as a coach and mentor? Bruce, Bruce was was another one. He's similar to Marty. You know, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't always over positive. Right, right. It was a. It was, it was a point one time. I I, I said this in a in a. They did a, a story on us, uh, the Temple Crew in the Super Bowl, and I did. A, I told him the story about one time. I, I called my dad. I I said, uh, I think he's going to cut me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so he 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 such a, he so he goes so hard, you know. But but Bruce had an uncanny way. He had an uncanny way of making you think that he hated you, right? Wow. But then he's got his he's got his arm around you, and he's and he's loving you up afterwards. I found out he got that from Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant told him, uh, uh, coach him hard and love him up later. You know what I mean? Oh, and he had a, he had a, he had a way of doing that, man. He like you're oof. even even his coaching when I was at Tampa Bay. He, you know, he I had been away from him for a while. He kind of he got a little more grizzly. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, oh man, he was he got in our behinds. My running back had a bad day, and oh man, he was on us for a month. I was like, gee whiz, every day running back. Argh. Oh jeez. Hey, hey, Todd! Did he coach? Did he coach Brady uh, hard and love him up later? Oh, <laughs> oh no! He, 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 you know what? You know what? I'm not gonna say he coached him up hard, like like with with his 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 vitriol. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he he uh, but he he got at Brady though. Did he? He, yeah. he got at yeah. Brady. Yeah. In the, in the, in the in the media. Uh huh. And you know we lost a couple games. Our quarterback oh, yeah. didn't play good enough. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I remember that actually. Yeah. I remember that yeah. in the in you know like yeah. on ESPN. Yeah. It's like yeah, he'd be yeah. like yeah, our, our quarterback did not do a good job. Accountability. Quarterback. Yeah. Accountability. Yeah, he did. He, yeah. he did not coddle him. Yeah. yeah. And Brady, awesome. Brady, and contrary to what I think a lot of people think, I think Brady appreciated it. You were named one of the country's top. 25 recruiters by rivals in 2006 and one of the nation's top five recruiters by CBS sports line in 2007. What were the keys to your success as a recruiter back then? Like maybe some of the people listening can apply them to recruiting for like their companies and so forth. Like what's the best approach for recruiting? I can't say what the best approach, I mean, best approach is, but like mine, I just, I just related to the kids. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I still, you know, I, I would go, I would, I would go and, I would go into a school. I have, I've had, I have a pair of shorts on with some Air Force Ones. My shirt pulled out right. my pants. And right. My hat backwards. <laughs> what's up, man? I'm like, what's up, bro? Right. And they, they look like the coach. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what's going on? What's going on? Man? What's up? What's up, man? But uh, so I, I just try to relate that, relate to them on on that on that level. You know what I mean? Because I, you know, I still, you know, I still young young. People around me, you know, I, I'm keen to what they, what the, the lingo, the, you know what I mean, and so that that would be the first thing. I wanted to be different, and I wanted to stand out. I wanted them to remember me as being different. So then they would equate my the school as being different and playing for us as being different, which which it was at the time, right? And because uh, I remember they came out, rivals had a thing. They 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 interviewed all the top the top fifty or top twenty something all the players. Who's your favorite uh, recruiter? Oh, Coach T Mac. He's he's like he's from my hood. <laughs> nice, nice. But, you know what I mean. Hell but yeah. so that that was the, I just wanted to stand out as different and give them the impression that playing for USC was is, is different. You know what I mean. Yep. And like I said, yeah, we had a coach who was different. The atmosphere at USC was totally different than than most places. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey Todd, was there ever a recruit that you thought when you met with them, there's no way in hell we're going to get him, and then you ended up landing him? Like who? Who are you proud to have recruited hard and landed for USC? One of mine, one of my recruits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would say, I would say, Cush towards the end, Brian Cushman. Ooh, like I, okay. I, I thought, I thought all along that I had him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, because he mentioned USC, and I, I jumped right on him. Cush is my man. One of my one of my good friends still to this day, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he uh, I had a, I did a, I had a seven 
I don't know. Well, we're out of there now. But I did like I had a seven hour home visit with Kush. We were playing PlayStation all <laughs> night, like chilling with his family. We were I was there forever. But 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 towards the end, you know, Kush North Jersey, you know, uh Catholic background. And his dad started pushing him for I don't know why, because his dad my was my guy too. He passed, but his mom passed. I don't know if his dad passed. But he, he was my guy. He used to call him the King of New York because he reminded me of Christopher Walken. And uh, he started pushing him for Boston College, Ooh. and the Catholic and the Catholic thing came up. So he was like Notre Dame or Boston College. Mm. His his father. Right. So I was like, oh man. And uh, you know, at one point I thought I might have lost him. You know, mm. and uh, but but he uh, you know, he he, he signed, and you know, that was that was one of my 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 proudest. The rest of them, I mean, to be honest, I think the rest of them, I kind of knew I had them. Now mm. another one uh, wasn't my wasn't my uh personal recruit mm-hmm. but it was my position with joe mcknight Ooh, okay. and joe mcknight you know you, those, those guys man down south especially the linemen the linemen can't leave their mom and grandma right right <laughs> yep yep yeah, right yep. yes and yes. You, you, <clears throat> like alcon jeffrey we had we had alcon jeffrey had alcon jeffrey he was coming to temple i mean uh temple usc yes, he's coming to usc his dad was from jersey Another one of the great home visits. Me and his pop kicked it for it. Like, we had a great time that night. He had been USC the whole time. The whole time. He's wearing USC stuff, everything. And uh, it, it was his mom or his grandma. I think it was his grandma. So, you ain't going to California, baby. Like, the oh. night, night, before the, oh. night before the signing day. Oh, He's man. Like, I, ain't even, I, don't, I ain't even talk to his grandma. I ain't even see his grandma. Right. Like, she wasn't around. The whole recruiting everything. Yep. And she just, she just popped me, you ain't going to California, baby. So I'm going to South Carolina the next morning. Oh. I said, man. So that, that was one, that was one I was, uh, I was disappointed at. Another one we had, another one we had that kind of spilled. We got, we got to a point where we just started going down. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the, it was, it wasn't, we didn't have a grip yeah. that we had on all kids before. We lost, uh, man, Ty Oh, wow. When he went to Notre Dame, he was, he was all we we thought we had him in the bag. Right, right. He was we we're high we high five man. Oh yeah, yeah we got it. Uh, and then him him it was a crew of them. Him Vontez Burfick and somebody else. Like they left. They didn't. We didn't get him in California. We didn't yeah. get him. And we always we always got them kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do got a question. Obviously, with this weekend coming. So your former team, the Kansas City Chiefs, are in the su- yep. Super Bowl here in a few days. It's yep. their fourth appearance in the f- past five years. I mean, that's quite a run, honestly. Mm-hmm. Who do you like on Sunday, and what kind of game do you expect for the Super Bowl? Who do I think is going to win? Uh huh. I, I think the Chiefs are going to win. Okay. Because because the the one the stat I forgot how many games it was that they haven't given up nine over nine points in the second half. Right. Which like that's been a for a, a nice little stretch, and to me as even to me I always say. When you're when you're when you're predicting who's going to win the Super Bowl, you got to look at the last couple games of the season, yep. see whose defense is playing lights out and whose quarterback is hot. Right. You know what I mean? Because if, if you got those two factors, where the defense is, uh, is getting turnovers and sacks and stuff like that, and your quarterback is hot, you come out of nowhere and win. Yep. The Giants were seven and seven the year they beat the Patriots. Right. Yep. They can't. Eli got hot. Straight hand them were heating up, and they went up, marched through the Super Bowl and beat the Patriots and stopped them from going undefeated. Yep. Green Bay did the same thing one year. Uh, Philly, Green Bay had to beat Philly just to get in the play in the playoffs. They beat Philly and they went on to beat Pittsburgh. You know, even us when we were in Tampa Bay, we were seven and five, coming off a three game losing streak, 
and we had a bye week. Came back after a bye week. And you were hot. Brady got hot. Defense started balling, and we 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 all the way to the Super Bowl and won it. So it's it's that Kansas City's defense is is, is hot right now, yes. and, and their second half point point uh, uh, point totals that they're giving up. And Mahomes is always going to be. Mahomes. You know, he's always going to be Mahomes. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a prime time baller, bro. Yeah. The Mahomes so, and Kelsey. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. You know, that, that, <laughs> those mean, two are. But, but what I think he's alluding to, which is absolutely correct, and the stat line that I kept seeing is, like, I don't think Kansas City has given up a 300-yard game no. on defense all season. No. At all. All season. No. Like, the, defense, the defense is playing lights out, bro. Yes. And that's, that's, yeah. that's why I give Kansas City a nod. All season long, you know, I'm, I'm like, man, the Niners, the Niners are tough. You can't, yeah. you know, I, I felt early in the season, I felt the Niners were the best team in football. Right. You know what I mean? But uh, but the, the Chiefs defense isn't getting enough credit. And I think that they, they've they just been playing lights out. I think Detroit, you know, Detroit was moving the ball against yeah. the Niners. Yep. Detroit, you know, they got a little, little, little zealous. You know what I mean? Yep. And, yep. and but uh, but I, I think it's going to come down. I think Kansas City's defense is going to be the difference in the game. Yep, I, I would agree with that one. So I got yeah. one, I got one last question for you. Let's go back to February seventh, twenty twenty one. The Super Bowl at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa. Tampa Bay Bucks crushed <laughs> the Kansas City Chiefs thirty one nine behind mm-hmm. Tom Brady. You were nearing the end of a ten year lawsuit with NCAA, which had derailed your coaching career. You were finally back to coaching as a running backs coach for the Bucks. Bruce was your head coach. Describe that moment after all this stuff had happened when that clock hit zero and you were a champion again. The Super Bowl? Yeah, man. I would, man, it was it was uh I don't I don't I'm a I'm a pretty emotional guy. Like I got tear up pretty easy. Uh I don't. I don't think it was that at the time. I, you know what? When the clock went off, I was trying to find my family, right? Right. Because they were down on the on the end, and they weren't letting the family out. They let my son out, you know, and like all, all the coaches, we were scrambling to get to get our families, right? And then uh, I, I got my son. They let my son out, and uh, but the, you know, for the and then everybody else came. But for the for the game itself, it, it was just the Green Bay game after we beat Green Bay. I was on the phone FaceTime with, with the fam. I broke down. You know what I mean? That 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 was it was the Green Bay game when we got to the Super Bowl. We won the championship to right. go to the Super Bowl. Right. Because we had, we had been through so much, man. We we had, we had been through a lot. You know, it was it was the, it was a long ride for us, my fam. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, but it was you know it was the Super Bowl itself and winning the Super Bowl. That, that, that was uh, that was that was pretty awesome. That was awesome. Fun feeling. It's incredible. We because we had a lot of plot lines with that Super Bowl too, yeah. though. You know what I mean? Like yeah. one, it, one, it was uh, uh, all the temples. Nine of us on the staff from Temple that were at Temple at the same time. Wow. Okay. Right? All of the Temple at the same time. Nine coaches. Then we were first team in in NFL history to play the Super Bowl on the home field. Right. Right. Then we were the first team to win. Uh, I think I think the first team to win a Super Bowl with three black coordinators. Wow. You know what I mean? Yep. Bowles, Keith Armstrong, and Byron Leftwich. Yep. You know, and BA is in the middle of that and all the BA stands for and everything, you know what I mean? It was uh it was it was it was it was awesome. You had Brady in his first year away from the Patriots. Yep. You know what I mean? It, it was it was a lot of stuff that, that went in the winning that Super Bowl that, that was that was really something special that's you know, looking back at it, 
and uh, it, it was it was dope. It was awesome. That's awesome. Keep- uh, uh, Todd, were you were you uh, drinking those peach martinis with Tom Brady peach. in the parade? No, it was avocado. Well, avocado. 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 That was tequila. it. Avocado, avocado tequila. tequila. Were you drinking those nah, with him? No. I, I was <laughs> Stay gonna, away from I was that. Another, no, nah, I was on another boat. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a, yo, that 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 uh that that boat parade was awesome. Never yeah. was there. It was one of the highlights of my life. That so was cool. Awesome. That That's awesome. Great. So different. Oh, yeah. cool. Him tossing the, yeah, super, different. Uh, yeah. the trophy right. to Gronk. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we didn't know we didn't know we were going to do it until I think a couple days beforehand. Yeah. Like we weren't like it wasn't it wasn't talked about. And all of a sudden, I think somebody from the from the Lightning or whoever won the the I think Stand the hockey champs yeah, Lightning. Yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 They said, "Oh, you guys got to do the boat parade." And all, so the boat parade popped up late. You know. And uh, it was it was that was awesome. That was yeah, that was crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, that was something. That was something else. Well, we want to say thank you very much for your time, Coach. This has been awesome, and uh, just uh, it's a great conversation. And, and thank you for all your input. And uh, let's see what happens. See if the Chiefs pull this one off, man. Yeah, we'll see. I, I like them. Go Chiefs. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests Keith Via and Todd McNair, our co-host Maria Cabre, our producer Rocco Riggio, and our editor Brian O'Connell. Thank you for starting your weekend with us. You can catch us each Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. And remember, people, the thirst is real.